Hi, I'm Alicia Abendroth, and this is Tridge Agri Insider, your agri food for thought podcast where we talk about anything and everything agri food supply chain. Brought to you by Tridge. Verdant Tech CRO Matthew Aronson offers insights into his personal career journey and the pivotal decisions he made when standing at the crossroads that ultimately led him to a career in agriculture. On today's episode of Agri Insider, we unpack the challenges of launching an ag tech startup and learn about the rewarding moments that come with contributing to a better food future. Hi, Matt. It's great to have you today with us on Agri Insider. Welcome to the show. Alicia, thank you so much for this opportunity, and it's exciting to um, just be part of you guys, you know, starting starting this podcast and kind of bringing, bringing it to life. So excited to be part of that. And I appreciate you joining us on this journey. It's It's been exciting. We've had some great episodes, but I'm definitely looking forward to what you're going to be telling us and sharing with the audience today. So I thought let's, you know, go right to the beginning. Let's dive in at the beginning of Matt's life. Um, <laughs> or maybe not that far back. We can also yeah. start where you got into or how you got into agriculture. What got you involved in this industry? And it's for a lot of people that has to do with the beginning of their life, but maybe that wasn't quite the journey for you. Yeah, it's I think it's a great place to start. You know, um, it uh, my, my, my journey certainly wasn't one that I can, I would say maybe at least on the surface, trace back to like the early, early years. I mean, I, I, I think about if you would have even told me 10 years ago um, that I would now be have dropped out of grad school, I'd be through two ag tech startups and I'd be living on a farm. You know, I, I don't know which of those things I would have believed less, but, you know, they're all true. And so I think maybe my journey, um, maybe somewhat um, unconsciously or, or sort of in the background um, kind of led me you know, to where I am now. But um, I think for me, my world, even before those 10 years, like leading up to that, my world, I think, you know, and my passion was really all around like energy and the environment. Um, and so what I was studying, the work I was doing, the things I aspired to do, the, you know, people I admired, companies I admired, were kind of in that space, energy and the environment. I think what I've now found in this agriculture space, um, you know, food and specifically, you know, produce and, and flowers has been you know, there's this really wonderful nexus between energy and the environment and food and farming. Um, and so I think that kind of got me hooked pretty early on in this journey. And and since then have continued to learn and discover just through my own work and, and you know, partnering with others and around all the other dimensions to this space, you know, whether that's culture and community, you know, geopolitics and health. And so it's just like constant, like learning curve after learning curve. Um, so really in the space, there's like something for everyone I've come to learn. So I agree. I agree completely. And I really liked what you said about the synergy that's happening between environment, energy, but then also food and farming. I agree. There's a lot of parallels uh, between the two sectors and we can get into that a little bit later. Yeah. But uh, so, OK, you said, you know, 10 years ago uh you, you wouldn't have believed had someone said you'd be in this industry so what what did you want to be as a kid i mean what was your childhood passion yeah it's funny i i um you know i i'm i'm, I'm sure my, my mom is uh, i love her dearly you know she, she's probably saved all my old book reports and probably got a lot of great videos of me like kicking the soccer ball um 
you know, I, I don't know if there was ever really that vividly, I want to be the astronaut or, you know, kind of passion so much. Um, it's funny, I have a, I have a young son um, uh, who, who's about to turn two. And so my wife and I, we, we often kind of ask ourselves that question now about him, like, what is he going to be when he grows up? And, you know, you just try to like um, support them, put whatever in their hands, books, you know, balls, whatever. Um, so I, 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 we're asking, you know, ourselves that same question. Um, so, you know, when I, when I think back, uh, while there may not have been that like one vocation or one thing, um, you know, I've always been fascinated with like how things work. Um, I think at a very young age, um, and, you know, that may have what may have been what I guess you, you might say kind of led me to at least studying engineering. But I, I think for me, as I think back my, you know, adolescent early years and even, you know, fast forward to now have really been sort of marked by like a series of sort of different crossroads. Um, and some of which like at the time felt like really tough, you know, decisions, which way to go. And early on, whether that was STEM you know, um, science, technology, or like music, and my love for, you know, uh, learning and, you know, playing music and, and maybe seemingly disparate paths. And so like, kind of went more formally, like the STEM route, still try to dabble, you know, music a little bit. Um, but then, you know, getting into college, it was, you know, going more like the policy route, I had an opportunity to kind of work in Washington, and went more like, you know, energy, you know, with an internship and like these like big crossers, I think that like, man, where would I be? And then, gosh, I remember even leaving college, it was like, I had an offer to go work at a job kind of in the energy space. Um, and I was like, do I want to do that? Consulting, you know what, I'm just gonna like, kind of tear that up and apply for grad school and see what happens and move to California and, and do the grad school thing. And then it was like, um, do I drop out of grad school to pursue this startup opportunity. I mean, again, it's always been this like series of crossroads. And so I don't know, I, I, I guess I feel maybe, you know, that um, this is one of those like very path deep, uh, path dependent sort of things where, I mean, it's these series of choices and crossroads um, that have, uh, I feel really grateful, you know, for them to have kind of led me to this point. So I don't know if that's quite the answer to your question, but um, um, I don't know, maybe my mom will listen to this and she'll remind me that like, I wanted to be a firefighter or something. But, yeah, you know. no, I, that, that was a great, um, answer to that question. Cause I think, um, those crossroads in life, we kind of forget them once we've made the decisions. I, I mean, I sometimes look back and I'm like, had I just made this one turn, uh, life would have been so differently. But when you're in the moment, you kind of don't always reflect on that. So, you know, you yeah. even hearing you speak, you made me kind of think about different crossroads I've encountered in my life. And um, yeah, it, it's it's interesting how we found ourselves together in this call today. Right. All those right. different turns yeah. led to this moment. Yeah. Uh, and I had to chuckle about what you said with the, with your mom, because my husband always says when he was a kid, they'd ask him this all the time. And he just started having a one line like architect architect because right. he just wanted people off his back right and, and so i just kind of laugh yeah. like, i shouldn't ask this question because i think kids just they end up digging themselves into this non-exploratory um kind of funnel because they just want to get parents off their back when it's good to be a kid and exploring right so really yeah that's yeah. a joy of it it is so okay so you took a lot of different um you made a lot of different big decisions. Your life has kind of led you to this path today. 
I mean, when you were making those decisions and evaluating and, you know, writing your pro and con list, uh, what kind of drove this shift to agriculture? I mean, why was, you know, I don't know, you think, I think you said you left grad school to work in an agri startup, right? Yeah. Like what yeah. was on that pro list besides maybe the financial gain, right? We can leave that, you know, yeah. paying student debt is nice. Um, but what were some of the things that drove that passion or that decision? You know, it, it's, uh, you know, yeah, making that leap um from grad school you know uh um which had been a path um you know chemical engineering and research and really at the interface of you know material science and quantum physics and you know it's like hopping into ag um you know at the time it was stepping into a technical role you know leading an engineering team and really working on like manufacturing and supply chain and kind of scale up so um, but getting to do it like for real in the real life and so um i, I think you know, it was exciting from an engineering standpoint, but I think even moreover, um, I'd always had um, for as long as I can remember, you know, my own entrepreneurial aspirations. And so um, it's easy to and, and I think, you know, wonderful to like read the books, listen to especially now like the podcasts, you know, founders and, and find that inspiration. Um, and, and I think certain things about our culture, maybe to some degree, like romanticize that it's so exciting, um, kind of that sexy thing to do the startup. Um, but then when it's right in front of you, and you have that choice to make, like, do I have that stomach to make that leap, you know, there's always that opportunity cost. So at that time, that leap for me was not about like ag versus, you know, a different industry, it was more that the leap to like, this new venture space startups, like, is that for me? And, you know, again, reading all the books, and it was sort of right in front of me and kind of closing my eyes. Of course, there's always going to be that opportunity cost, like with any choice we make. But um, it was like finding it in myself to like make that leap. Um, and then so grateful I did for many reasons. Um, um, but it, it, it then led me, you know, to this ag space that, you know, the company I was working for and very quickly, you know, uh, again, I was like learning curve after learning curve, but got to know this space of ag and produce. And I think where that quickly led me, and I think um, you know where you know where I still am today is a couple of things. One, like farming, and I think agriculture in general is is I would describe as problem solving, like fundamentally, um, which as an engineer to my core is what I love to do most. Um, and you know, problem. So I, th I think there's a notion you know that like a problem well stated is a problem half solved, and so just constantly on different scales, link scales like problem solving every single day. Um, I see it at my kind of small farm at home. I see it with the work I do in like global supply chains. And so I think this problem solving that scratch that itch for sure, but then really getting to, to, you know, recognize there's just a huge opportunity for innovation. Um, when I think about the food system, whether regional or global, just there's, I mean, here we are today, 2023, there's just a whole new set of knowledge and domains to, I think like integrate um, and kind of consider as part of, our food system and kind of its reimagination or redesign, you know, when you consider like 90% of the data it's estimated in the world has been generated in the last two years. It's like, it's like hard to get wow. your arms around that, but it's, you know, it's, it's just to say like, um, th there's just a great opportunity for innovation, which I think is really exciting. And I, I think maybe most importantly, at, at least for me is just like recognizing and the impact, um, again, going back, you know, energy and the environment and wanting to have an impact in that space where um, I'll, I'll reference things like Project Drawdown, you know, kind of a, um, 
summary of like the you know top you know hundred you know peer reviewed solutions for you know impacting climate change, and you kind of go through that. You know, it's it's a great it's a great book. It's, it's funny, my son loves flipping through it and like looking at the tractors and other pictures. But um, you know, the Project Drawdown identifying like um, reducing food waste is the leading solution to impacting climate change and kind of the just you, you realize that there's, yes, it's innovation, it's exciting, it's problem solving, but at the end of the day, just like being able to make that sort of impact on our planet um, is for me, like what I guess gets me out of bed um, and gets me excited to, to, to work and continue to like, you know, attempt to solve some of these problems, so. I love that. So would you say then that reducing food waste and um, kind of solving some of these sustainability challenges through addressing food waste is, your driver today um is that a fair assessment then yeah i mean i think that's a big part of it for me i mean it's it's core to the mission of um you know the company i work for now and even the one previous um i mean it's uh it, it's something very tangible you know sometimes these you know big big issues are like hard to kind of visualize or touch but i think we've all you know even myself admittedly there's there's wasteful habits we all have we throw things away i try to teach my son you know we don't waste food in this house he launches a banana you know what he's saying but it's it's very real and it and it you know um it's very tangible so yeah i, I think that's a big that's a big piece of it for me um you know and, yeah. and that continues to be part of part of you know my own i guess personal mission you know the whole leaving the world a better place i think um some of the things you read you know, or maybe, uh, you know, were impactful to you at, in some way, like at different phases of your life, take on new meaning. Um, and, and that certainly is the case for me now, bringing a new generation into the world. Um, so uh, there's a quote I love, one of my favorite authors, Wendell Berry. Um, he says, you know, we don't inherit the earth from our ancestors, we borrow it from our children. Um, so, you know, things like that um, take on new meaning. Um, to you know the work we do and you know the goals we have so i love that saying um thanks for mentioning that here in, in yeah. the podcast it, that's a special one um maybe, maybe that's a good segue then because you kind of touched on what you're working on today and and uh, the, the company you're working with today uh could you tell us a bit about verdant technologies why verdant why now yeah um you know, I, I've been with Verdant now for almost two years. It's, it's great. I, I don't know if it, you know, it, it seems longer or shorter than that. I mean, time, I don't know about you, but post, well, I'm going to say post COVID ish, um, time is, feels like such an enigma and it, it's mm -hmm. like, how long has it been? But anyway, it's been there for almost two years. Um, you know, I, I like to describe Verdant very simply as a ag tech startup, you know, and, uh, and a startup in kind of all the best ways, you know, really kind of mission driven team innovation, um, you know, I, I would also describe Verdant Technologies as an organization really rooted, and this goes back years before I joined, kind of the garage store, you know, but um, years before I joined, you know, an organization rooted in science and innovation. Um, and, and what's really formed our purpose, you know, like for our team, you know, you kind of do those exercises, you know, developing like that purpose, vision, the mission statement, you know, for our team, it's really, um, you know, finding inspiration and imagining what, you know, what a, a nourished world could could do you know so this idea of nourishment is something that's like really core to to us and and the work we do in our in our in our purpose um so the word nourishment it kind of takes on different meanings it's it's not just like the calories and the, the nutrients but 
you know, uh, in the food, but, you know, the joy that comes with things like flowers and kind of the, the whole sensory experience and the communities that we impact. So, um, you know, th this this journey of, of like nourishment and kind of science and innovation has like initially led us to fresh produce and flowers. Um, and so where we develop um, nature inspired solutions to help reduce food waste and improve customer experience. And, you know, we could, we could nerd out on the science. I, I, I always love doing that. But I, I think the way I would kind of describe the, the products that we're bringing to market um, is it's like an innovative spin on a proven uh, technology. It's like a different way to apply a technology that was developed decades ago. Um, and I think that's a great framework for innovation. It's not always new tech. It can be a new way to apply or integrate, you know, proven or old technology. Um, and so that, that's what we're doing. We've got, you know, uh, um, an innovative way to apply an old technology, which is really then an unlock for it to be applied to more fruits and vegetables. Um, and at the end of the day, what we're providing to our partners, to the supply chain is more time, you know, fundamentally, you know, so I, I believe firmly that, you know, time is the most valuable resource we have on this planet. Um, doesn't matter what industry, who you're talking to. And so, so that's at the end of the day, there's great tech behind it. Although there's no, there's no app, there's no AI. <laughs> okay. um, it, it's, it's a physical product with some really cool material science behind it. Um, you know, we call it harvest hold. Um, and, and that's what we're using for fruits and vegetables. And then we've got another kind of name, ethylene buster sheets for what we use in flowers, fresh cut flowers. But in both cases, it's a roll, think paper towel roll that you might have in your kitchen. You know, you tear the sheet off, you put it in the bottom of the box, the produce or flowers go, you know, in there as well. Um, and, and what it does in releasing a certain gas, it helps our partners uh, manage ethylene in their supply chain. And so that, again, you know, fruits and vegetables and flowers are perishable, you know, they'll, they'll go bad. Um, and so we're just by extending the shelf life or the vase life, we're giving them more time, them more time, you know, there's grower, packers, shippers, retailers, and even end consumers. So um, it's really about just giving more time, you know, even a few extra days go a long way to making a huge impact in the supply chain. So that's that's what we're working on at Verdict. So a, a question I like to ask startups is, you know, what problem are you solving? And, I, and I've heard the word, you know, giving back more time or the phrase giving back more time, which I really love. Yeah. But maybe I'm packing a bit more. What does the world look like without Verdant? Yeah, well, um, that's, a, that's a great that's a great way to phrase it. Um, you know, I, I think one of the it, it's, it's one of the, I think, challenges and opportunities we have um, because I'll just say like you can, um, whether you're in Europe or, you know, here in the States, um, there are certain things that at least on the surface, you might say, Hey, I, I can, my, my world looks the same. Like I can buy broccoli in the store. Um, I don't need burden for that. Um, but maybe a little bit more behind the scenes, like in the supply chain, what you may not realize as a consumer is, um, there are real challenges with getting broccoli through the supply chain of the consumer with the sort of uh, level of freshness that people expect or want. And so um, when you kind of peel back those layers, what you realize is like, again, yeah, like people can grow broccoli and ship broccoli, but they do it with solutions that I might argue are a bit old school or antiquated. And again, here's you know the, 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 room, the opportunity for innovation. So imagine a 40 pound box of broccoli uh, shipped uh, half of that weight is ice in the box. These are one of those things that like, you know, you stumble upon and it's like, there's no way that's true. Like that can't be true. Um, and it is. Uh, and 
And people have been looking, you know, trying to move away. This is not a new idea, you know, moving away from that ice for all sorts of reasons, freight costs, food safety, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it, I just give it as an example of, you know, maybe on the surface, people are like, you know, is this a need to have or a nice to have? But when you find the right partner, you kind of peel back the layers and you realize there is a better way um, to, to ship um, and ultimately, you know, like for us to, as consumers and, you know, consume fruits and vegetables, these like perishable commodities in a way that is more sustainable or is more cost effective or delivers a better customer experience. And, and sometimes those opportunities like aren't right on the surface. There are opportunities. I'll just, another example I'll give is like where we have, and this has always been like the pipe dream. I'll say for anyone who's like, there are many solutions to shelf life extension. You know, this idea of like more time to your point is not a new idea. Um, and as a startup, I mean, inherently that kind of means like we're the, the new guy on the block. So, you know, we're, we're kind of finding our space. Um, and, and one of the, 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 like the blue sky, the big ideas is like, can you, by giving more time, unlock or allow for like new varieties or new items to be like introduced that otherwise wouldn't have been possible. Um, so it's, it's really challenging when you, I love it when you talk to people and you kind of, you know, putting our sheet in the box, like business as usual, maybe extends things a little bit. Does that really move the needle people, you know, how excited are they really, but when they start to really understand and think critically about their own business and operations, maybe the things that are just sort of the, um, business as usual, the cost of doing business, when you really kind of look critically at those things and say, wait a second, you know, what if we did it this way? The other example I'll give, which was like a true zero to one was a tomato variety with one of our partners that, um, and there's probably so many examples like this. So I say this and, and hopefully someone hears this and is like, wait a second, um, we should you know, try that same thing. Um, all the work that goes into developing a new variety for like a true, like amazing customer experience. And sadly, as you probably know, uh, you know, new varieties are often looked at in terms of like yield or uniformity or right. transferability. What about shuffle or what about, sorry, what about taste or flavor? And so there was this amazing tomato variety to make a long story short that had gone through, but basically was shelved, gone through all the development was shelved because it wasn't going to make it to market. So we were working on kind of another initiative with this partner and they were like, wait a second, what if we applied your solution here? Long story, like it was created enough shelf life then for this tomato variety to be launched last year. So something that the consumer would never have seen. So I think there's probably more and more examples like that sort of a zero to one unlock. Um, and just as many, honestly, if not more examples of really with our partners, you know, importantly, we're not, we can't do this alone. You know, we're not growing the produce, we're not selling the produce, but like partnering with the right folks um, that have a vision to kind of reimagine the supply chain with us to look at the way things are, are, are being done or maybe not being done because they didn't think it was possible, like changing the calculus on, on how decisions are made. Um, and using that time to, to, to do that. So it might be kind of a behind the scenes, but I still think that's just as sexy personally. No, but I, I think you're raising a really good point. Uh, I don't think a lot of consumers realize that what we get to eat, uh, you know, or what's available to us in the grocery store is purely what functions in our very modular, you know, minimalistic supply chain systems. I, I, you know, and I think when you start peeling back the layers and you look at, okay, it has to fit, like you said, in a 40 pound box, it has to be able to withstand X amount of days in transport, it has to be able to do, you know, there's all these parameters that especially produce, right? And I come from a produce industry as well. So that is an mm -hmm. industry that, you know, for me really uh, resonates, but you look at these journey, the journey of these different products, and 
you realize, okay, with all this, almost like a checklist of factors that, that the product has to fulfill, uh, we're really limited. Right. And I think, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting to me to hear a case study like this, where a company could literally change the accessibility while still maintaining the accessibility to food while still maintaining the supply chain we have today. Right. Because yeah, you know, sometimes I ask myself, do we need to like destroy the supply chain and just go back to CSAs and like live local, right? Or can yeah. we figure out a way to make what we're doing uh, currently more efficient, more effective? And it, and it sounds like that's kind of what you're doing is taking what's existing and optimizing it. Um, yeah, I think it's a good way to put it, Alicia. You know, I, I, I've often heard and maybe you as well and maybe some of the listeners too that like the food system is broken or, you know, kind of saying something along that effect. Um, and, and maybe I'll, I'll admit for a while, I kind of subscribe to that notion. And, and um, but, you know, I, 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 li I was listening to something the other day and someone made a point, which I thought was, has, has got me thinking and I'm still like, you know, uh, trying to figure out how I feel about it. But they said, you know, the food system is not broke. The food system is actually functioning exactly how it was designed. Um, yeah. But, you know, we live in a new world with a growing population and excitingly new tools and, you know, solutions and data that we can employ and integrate to kind of reimagine, you know, kind of the food system. So it, it it's not to kind of be that Monday morning quarterback and say it's all broken. We got to like totally fix it. I, I think that's not, you know, recognizing all the amazing work and innovation that has happened to this point. Um, so I don't know that that just kind of got me thinking differently about you know, this food system. Yeah. So a hundred percent. I think it's a, I think that question is the food system really broken needs to be asked because I agree. Every, everyone likes to say that. So, um, kind of, yeah. Flailantly, is that even a word, <laughs> you know, just so casually yeah. they just chuck it out there. But, um, you know, we, it kind of, I think when someone just says that it overlooks the fact that we live in a really complex world and we've, created a food system that allows us to eat blueberries in January, right? I mean, is it good, bad? We can discuss that, but it is pretty incredible that we've created a yeah. system like this. So I think we need to kind of appreciate what we've achieved, uh, but then also say, okay, is it is it perfect? Is it good? Is it, you know, where can we make sacrifices maybe even in this supply chain for a better world? Those are the questions we should be asking. But I, I kind of agree with the the, the podcast or the, the speaker, whatever, who said, um, is the food system really broken? Uh, I, I think, yeah, we need to give ourselves a tiny bit more credit potentially. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think there's a notion that, um, and, and this maybe is kind of, I'm drawing from just, you know, professional development coaching, but I, I think it can apply here, which is like, what got us here won't get us there. Hmm. Um, and, and so that's not to say there have been great strides in innovation and, you know, um, over the last few years or a few decades or several decades. Um, and, and I think in that spirit of continuous improvement, innovation, um, you know, we can't kind of rest on our laurels. We have to continue to like find ways to, to innovate and partner. Um, and, and thankfully, I think what gives me optimism, you know, I, I think sometimes the things you read in here can be like, so doom and gloom. Um, but I, I find, you know, great optimism in, you know, uh, conversations like this and others I listen to, but also just like getting to see and touch and, you know, 
some of the great new innovations in technology that's out there. Um, and again, it's not all about tech. Um, I'll take my engineering hat off. I think just ways in which people are partnering, you know, um, thinking long-term, the kind of private um, public collaborations that are happening. You know, innovation takes all different forms. It's not just about, you know, some new technology or intellectual property. I think the ways in which we innovate or, or integrate different things, kind of a systems mindset, you know, all, all these things when you, uh, they're out there, these stories, these success stories, and um, they give me great optimism, you know, for the future. I'm happy to have an optimistic viewpoint on, <laughs> on Agri Insider. It's, it's refreshing to hear some, some positive, upbeat um, outlooks on the future. So drilling a bit deeper, though, into your roles and responsibilities, you know, maybe just tell us what's your yeah. title? What do you do? Uh, what, what, you know, what's in your kind of R&R? Yeah, my, my title at Vernon is Chief Revenue Officer. Um, and, and some may be familiar with that title, others may not. Um, you know, I, I like to describe it as a role that, you know, really aligns all revenue, revenue generating functions across the entire customer lifecycle, uh, you know, to drive for, for our company predictable revenue growth, but, but even more importantly, customer satisfaction, you know, for our partners. So, you know, what that looks like at Verdant, you know, I, I lead our our sales and marketing and um, customer success and revenue operations teams. Um, and what I love about it is, you know, I, I can say this about, I would say like everyone on my team, it, it's a team, you know, where the individuals have, I like to describe, they, all the experience, you know, they bring to the team, maybe where I'm lacking in some degrees, like they've in this industry, specifically produce, so many on my team have forgotten more about produce that I will probably ever know. <laughs> I like that. Uh, and, and if you can just kind of like picture that, and that's such a beautiful thing, you know, that, um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing to get to kind of work and lead that team. Um, you know, we are, you know, very much as a, as a, as a startup, you know, in that kind of go, go to market phase. So, you know, we're grinding. Um, and I love that. I mean, it's, yes, there's like travel, there's changing ambiguity. Um, but, you know, in addition to all the externally facing work we're doing, you know, the sales efforts, marketing campaigns, customer onboarding, et cetera, there's still, there's also a lot of team development and building internal processes and, and, and systems. Um, and so that, that's for me, part of the, the, the fun, the joy of like this stage of the business, um, you're building, you know, kind of SOP 0001, you know, right. foundation. Um, so, so, I mean, I think to me, and you're right, you don't hear the title CRO that often in agriculture. I mean, it's a very classic startup, um, terminology and kind of SAS terminology, but yeah. I would say it doesn't exist. That role doesn't exist in most average agribusinesses. Maybe you'd get like business development manager or senior director of business development. So I, you know, right. I think, I think it's kind of indicative of the innovation you're trying to bring to the space and, and you know some of that kind of startup SaaS terminology but there is still no denying and i and i think you speak to a lot of startups or even traditional you know actors in the agri-food supply chain you know this business is not easy and especially introducing new solutions to farmers or you know shipping companies it's extremely difficult right um, For sure 
maybe I know, and I have some listeners in the audience who are, you know, founders as well. So can yeah. you just shed some light on, on, on why it's so difficult and, and how you combat those, that, those difficulties? Well, you know, I'll take establish. I, uh, I'm not going to pretend to like have the, <laughs> the silver bullet, the answer I'm uh, if anyone does, I please reach out and I would love to um, <laughs> talk, talk with them and buy them a coffee. Um, but you know, you're, you're right. Uh, there, there are a lot of challenges, um, at least, you know, on, you know, both on the surface and, and for real. I mean, I, I, um, and I've, I've felt that over the last, you know, uh, almost 10 years. Um, and, and I think your question of like, why, you know, where is that coming from? What's the root of that is a question I, I ask myself a lot. I ask my team, I ask, you know, folks in the industry. Um, I think, you know, one way to answer that is, you know, listen, if, if you're, if you're a new, a new player, a new kind of solution provider in that space, um, I, th I think recognizing that the folks that we ultimately seek to partner with businesses, organizations, whether those are kind of public or, or private, say like multi-generational farms, I mean, um, you know, they, there's a long history there and tradition. And so it's, it's, it's been said to me and, and maybe you've heard it said in different ways, you know, people do business with other people that they know and they like, and they trust just fundamentally. Um, and so that if you look at any one of those pieces, the, the kind of know the, the, the people they know, the familiarity, um, they like, I mean, I guess you could argue, maybe you don't have to like someone, but you know, they could give you a good deal, but you know, certainly the trust piece is something that, you know, it takes time to build. And so I think that's just part of it. You know, you, you have to kind of recognize, and, and it's really an honor. I think about some of the folks we're partnered with that have been in business for gosh, decades or generations. And like, here we are, you know, and we've been working with them for like a year or so. And it's just, you know, amazing to think about how we're now a very small piece of, of what's been an amazing legacy for them. So I, I think fundamentally that's part of it. I, I mean, listen, yes, like this macroeconomic environment creates challenges for, uh, you know, for for making change or new investment. You know, I might start to talk to you about value and all you're going to hear is cost, you know, in this sort of macroeconomic environment with, you know, rising inflation, you know, who wants to add uh, another cost, you know, to their business at this point. Um, so I think, you know, that can present challenges. Um, I think that there's, you know, I don't think this is necessarily specific to ag, but um, sort of the looking for the short term wins versus like a long term mindset, like looking at this investment more in the long term, really clearly defining those success metrics. Um, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, and the other thing I would add maybe to this too, because some of your listeners might be partnering at different parts of the supply chain, there's all different stakeholders. Um, and, and I've had the pleasure of working with folks kind of along that value chain, whether that's more on the growing side, all the way through to kind of the buy side with retail. Um, you know, so I think as you peel back the layers on like the why, like you ask, like, why, why, why does it seem like it's slow? I, I think, you know, there's all these factors. I saved one for the end and I had an interesting conversation just with someone yesterday about this. Um, but you know, if you look at the different parts of some of the different value, like the stakeholders, listen, I, I think for folks kind of at that farming side, the growing side, there's, there's you know, they may point to a history of how they've been maybe not day one, but over time, like forced to absorb a lot of the costs. So like of a new innovation. And so they, they kind of have that PTSD of like, I know what's coming, you know, I'm going to be forced to absorb this cost. Amount. It's it, that is to say, maybe it's, there's not a, uh, a great, um, precedent or <laughs> for like sharing that cost, maybe equitably across the supply chain. Um, I think there's another, if you look at the other end of the supply chain, more in that kind of buy side retail, I think, 
what's really challenging and, and I can totally empathize is how, you know, you got to justify the cost of that investment and attribution, you know, I'm paying X, I'm getting Y. When you get all the way through the supply chain, there's all sorts of changing hands and trucks and everything. Like you get to the very end, you try to do that analysis. It's really hard to, if you even have the data, if it's trending in the right way, but then how do you attribute that? So then you can justify the cost of that investment. That, that's a really hard exercise. So I think that creates challenges. Um, the last thing I'd say, which again, this came up in a conversation yesterday. Um, I think fundamentally what I would say is the, the, the rate of like trying new things, that innovative spirit is there. I, 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 I think the rate of, you know, trying new things, um, you know, and, and I think there's great examples of that. I, I think maybe what's like missing and what maybe you're not seeing, or I'm not seeing, or others aren't seeing is like that, like adoption or scaling, you know, real implementation. Um, and, you know, and, and, and listen, I'm not going to, again, pretend to, to, you know, know exactly why, why that hasn't happened again, it's maybe a lack of proven results or, you know, one of the things that uh, I would share, there, there's a great organization I really respect a lot called refed. Um, they're a nonprofit really focused around reducing food loss and waste. Um, and their executive director, um, you know, at a recent, at the recent annual summit said something, this, this strong message of scaling the pilots. So anyways, when I look at this long-winded way of answering your question, um, is there slow adoption? It may seem like that on the surface. I think there are reasons why both macro and micro, um, and depending on which stakeholder you're talking to. Um, but I think, you know, for a lot of solutions like ours, you know, and, and we've seen this, I could give a lot of examples, but this notion of like scaling the pilots, like why? Not just because that's where we're, we're going to see the big impact, but I think for a lot of solutions, you know, that's where, where you really get, you know, the sort of representative data or results to say like, is this the right fit for my business? So how as partners, can we like more quickly scale solutions to look at that true result or representative, you know, data, um, to allow business leaders to make confident, you know, business decisions, um, about these investments. So I think, I think this notion of like, uh, there, there are great solutions out there. Um, some have been tried or tested, but it's, I think this, um, call to action to, um, partnering in a way there's, there's always risk. I mean, that, that's like one side of the coin, then there's opportunity, but how do we find ways to like scale some of these pilots, these solutions? And I think there, you know, uh, we'll see results and out of that can come case studies to really drive change. Cause at the end of the day, I, I mean, not just in this space, but you know, change is hard and there's a lot of inertia, you know, um, around the way things have always been done. I, I, I actually, I'll share with you, Alicia, I was at, a had the opportunity to attend a, like a sustainability summit. Um, it, it kind of just somewhat serendipitously, but, uh, this was put on by a major, um, global retailer. This was uh, about a month or two ago. And one of my takeaways from that event, they had a, a slide up on screen. And it said, and I just love this, it said the most dangerous phrase in our language is we've always done this or we've always done it this way. The most dangerous phrase in our language is we've always done it this way. Um, and, and so I, I think that we can talk macro, economic conditions, et cetera, et cetera. But like change and the inertia, like to change, uh, making a case for change is hard. I mean, that that's not technology. I mean, that, that's like human psychology, you know, human nature. And so I think that's, 
Um, I think that's where the relationships and the trust and, you know, comes in the human element, you know, to helping driving change, you know, the need to change in this space. Yeah, you, you said a lot of really great things there. I, I made a, a little list here as you were speaking, but there's one I want to hone in on a bit more because um, I also love connecting the dots a bit between sure. uh, podcasts. Uh, I had a, I had the privilege of speaking to a professor, Lisa Jack. She's going to go live in a, in a couple of um, uh, weeks from now. But she her whole kind of take on agriculture is she focuses on agriculture accounting or really um, hmm. supply chain accounting. And she mentioned something that really stuck with me that I think will kind of resonate with this question of why, which was, um, you know, there's a real flaw in the way farming businesses actually do their accounting. There's a lot of lack of accountability to where costs are actually going. And I managed, you know, the books hmm. for an agricultural business. And it's really hmm. true and you mentioned it as well, it's really hard to attribute the reward to a certain cost. It's not as linear as input equals output as it would be in a factory or, you know, you've got all of these moving parts and some things are, I would say a lot of costs are indirect costs. Um, and, you know, really one should just listen to her podcast because I, I don't have an accounting degree and she's a professor <laughs> in it. But, but, you know, she talked about how there needs to be kind of a re-education in bookkeeping and agriculture because two reasons. One, I think it would allow for more uh, adoptability of innovation because there'd be a spot for that on, on the kind of balance sheets. But secondly, if, you know, farmers keep operating at a cost basis, you know, a cost coverage only basis, we could jeopardize our food security because these businesses aren't actually, um, mm. you know, making money. So anyway, I think it, it's an interesting point you raised, and I and it kind of was an epiphany for me as you were speaking that probably inhibitor a huge inhibitor to innovation and entering the agri space is exactly that. There's just not really a house for it on this really already convoluted uh, balance sheet or P and L. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm really intrigued. I'm glad you brought that up and connected those dots. Alicia, I'm, I'm excited to, to listen to that. And I, again, I'll plead my ignorance as not an accountant. Um, and and I, I'm, I'm sure that 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 plays a part. And what it also makes me think a lot is kind of like incentive structures that exist or do not exist, you know, across this, you know, kind of food value chain. Uh, you think about what it takes to get, you know, a tomato or broccoli, you know, any pick your favorite piece of produce uh, to market. Um, and and I think then we can all think about within our own lives or kind of within our own teams or organizations, you know, the importance of for our teams and individuals, like creating the right incentive structures, you know, for them to care or give a shit. I don't know if, I don't know what the policy is on, <laughs> like on the podcast, but you know, for lack of a better word or phrase. Um, but, you know, I, I think about if you're a retail buyer sitting at the desk and let's say your incentive, you're incented on things like sales and margin and market share. You know, how does something like that directly connect to goals around innovation or ESG, you know, and and uh, I'm not pointing a finger. I'm just giving you an example. I, I think I could give examples across, you know, all stakeholders in the value chain. Like how are those incentives either in place or aligned to drive some of that change or foster that innovation to kind of account for maybe that's kind of the accounting piece, like account for the cost in different ways. So. I think there's some mechanics there. Um, anyways, yeah, I'll, I'll be excited to kind of listen to that perspective. It's there's no sad, well, not sadly, but just the reality. Of course, there's no silver bullet like there often isn't. Um, no. but I think it's a great question. I appreciate you asking me, and hopefully, 
for the listeners out there too. I mean, th this is just one of these things that um, there, there's so many apparent like roadblocks or kind of friction to like innovation. And um, I, I think some of these things aren't going to be solved in a lab. Um, you know, I think a lot of them are going to take just conversations like this really open, candid dialogue um, to, you know, and admittedly, even for me, feel a little vulnerable and, you know, trying to take a stab or share some of this. So I welcome any feedback and, and uh, other thoughts or insights that others might have out there. I agree. And I think part of the point of the podcast is, is to not be always 110% correct, but just to throw ideas out there and concepts out there and see how they stick, right? Because that's, that's I believe in the same thing as, as you were just saying, you know, we need to just have these conversations and, and see where they go and um, not be afraid to kind of speak because there are things that we've seen, right? Injustices, you said it too, a lot of this forcing to absorb costs at farm level. I mean, you're not saying this because you haven't seen it before. You've obviously experienced a farmer say to you, I have so many costs, I can't take one more. As much as I love this, I just can't do it, right? Uh, and how do we look at those problems and not just say, oh, okay, well, it's just the environment and we're just going to scathe over it. But how do we actually address that as a you know, systemic issue uh, that we need to solve. And and so I appreciate you kind of calling out those issues. And, um, you know, even if we don't have the solution here right now today, we need to we need to make them heard. So that's that, you know, that's the point okay. of Agri Insider. Okay. Um, pivoting a slight bit. So, well, not sure. really pivoting too much, but um, circling back, I guess. Yeah. Is there any advice you'd give to other CROs out there? Because I think it is, you know, we just touched on a lot of different points, a challenging role. Is there any kind of one, two key takeaways, words of advice you can give CROs specifically in ag tech? Yeah, challenging, but, you know, I don't want to scare people away. It's also incredibly rewarding and exciting. Um, <laughs> um, gosh, you know, I think I, I, one of the key things in, in that role, certainly at a startup um, and, and, you know, really even you know, other growth stages, I think just really important to keep the customer at the center um, of, you know, your strategies, you know, uh, processes, et cetera. Um, and, and that, and that's easier said than done. Um, and I think what goes along with that a little bit is just that balance, you know, in terms of time and energy, this is something I'm, I struggle with, like the internal versus the external, you know, you're, you're building the team and the company, but you know, how do you balance that with, you know, being out with the customer and, you know, out at the events. And so that, that, that can be in the, just the team development, you know, piece So that's that internal external struggle. So just like finding that balance and that's like leaning on your team and your peers in the organization. But, um, but, but, but those to me are kind of related, keeping the customer at the center. Um, you know, I, I would say, yeah, just let me last couple of things quickly. You know, and we've kind of talked about it just, um, just here a second ago, but just like, <laughs> You know, don't underestimate the kind of like time and complexity of that like B2B sales cycle um, and, and um, you know, all the different buying influences that you have to kind of uh, form relationships with, engage with um, and, and ultimately, you know, kind of sell to an influence. Um, I think that's just important to keep in mind and, and maybe goes without saying, maybe, maybe I'm just kind of admitting my own flaws, uh, <laughs> you know, in retrospect. Um, and, and and last but, uh, but not least, I, I think one of the things that I've seen previously and even now is I would say to CROs, you, you think about the customer lifecycle, sales, marketing, and, and customer success and aligning those functions. Um, so it creates a really seamless customer experience. A really key piece of that, especially in this day and age of data and insights, 
is I would say to invest in RevOps or revenue operations. It's a, it's a really critical function, um, one that some may be familiar with, uh, others not, but um, I like to describe it as a real force multiplier. Um, you know, not just the data and the insights, but enablement for the team members, uh, for myself, uh, driving that cross-functional cross alignment internally. So um, I, I've seen I've seen that be a real unlock, real force multiplier. And so I would I would uh, you know strongly encourage those CROs that uh, are either thinking about that or haven't really considered it to uh, to invest uh, to the extent they can in that function. Yeah, uh, I I agree. I think good support systems also lead to better customer experience. So uh, I I can I can really uh, emphasize that as well. You know, uh, you and I do have one kind of overlap in our CVs. Yours is much bigger than than mine. Um, I worked at Appeal Sciences as a yeah. contractor for a really brief period in time when they were just getting going in Europe, and you were you know inside the belly of the beast there through yeah. I think probably like two three funding rounds or at least through a huge yeah. leap of growth. Um, yeah, I mean, Appeal is Series E, I believe, and I, one of the biggest kind of names in the ag tech mm -hmm. space. I think most people, when you say Appeal, they're like, oh, Appeal, right? Because they just made such a fast move in the agri, especially yeah. produce space. Um, so you worked there for seven years, and I, I think what I'd like to understand, because I think a lot of also startups ask themselves this question, you know, how do I become an Appeal or how do I become a Tridge? How mm -hmm. do I get to these late stages? and and, and grow my business and become these market players and not just become a startup or leave that kind of series A startup phase. You know, do you have any, do you think there were any specifically right plays or anything you saw that hmm. maybe made that difference? You know, we talked about turns in the road, you know, did right. they do something correct at the right time that triggered that growth? It's a great question. Um, and, and yeah, I, I look back very fondly on my years at Appeal. Um, and that was kind of the startup I was referring to earlier, you know, jump ship from grad school, kind of at the very end of my PhD and join this startup uh, there in Santa Barbara, Appeal, um, and kind of those early days, just coming out of the garage, you know. Um, I, I mean, I think it would be easy to say, in terms of like, what made that difference, you know, as, as others are, you know, trying to, you know, ascend to similar heights or, you know, similar aspirations. I mean, I, listen, there is, there's certainly a notion of right place, right time that feels a little convenient. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, when you think about, you know, Peel being founded back in, you know, kind of 2012, that that was right around the time there was a really impactful, at least for me, or and, and I think now increasingly for folks in this space, a report called Wasted that was put out. And, and that's what I think in large part kind of put food waste, you know, uh, you know food loss and waste as, as an issue or opportunity really on the map. You know, it's almost like you could kind of go to the brewery now and like you could talk to just a random person to be like, oh, yeah, 30, 40 percent of food is wasted. Like, I know that, you know, but like that, that wasn't, you know, food waste wasn't so in vogue back back then. Um, and so I right around the time that people was being founded, you know, maybe some of this, um, some of these efforts and, and, you know, this space really started to grow and take off. So, again, you could say right place, right time. Um, but I don't, I don't think I'd be giving credit enough to, you know, the kind of founders and early leaders of Appeal. I mean, listen, there's there's really cool technology um, and kind of the ingenuity sort of surrounding that um, and the support from early investors, too, that I think, you know, really helped, you know, all of us as just, you know, really inexperienced, but just passionate, you know, former grad students, like just dive right in and kind of just break things, you know, solve problems like so many great folks that kind of um, held our hand, or not even held our hand, but just like really gave us kind of great guidance and, and mentorship 
Um, but you know, one thing that comes to mind again, kind of the founder and the leadership is the culture. Um, and I think that's something, you know, one of my mentors, Alicia shared with me, and it, I feel like it, it very much like parallels your question here and sort of what was foundational to them appeal having a lot of success. Um, this notion that entrepreneurs build great teams, um, great teams build great cultures, and then it's great cultures that build great companies. Um, and so this is something one of my mentors has shared with me, but I, it comes to mind now as you ask the question, um, because I think in large part, it was this entrepreneurial spirit. So I'm just like really crazy, smart people that were just like, yeah, I'll get on that, you know, airplane and we'll build it as we're flying it kind of thing. Um, you know, very mission driven. And I think through that, the team formed and, and the culture along with it. And I think that attracted, it's like the flywheel started spinning, right? Like you just attract like better and better people. And ultimately, then the the people and, and kind of industry surrounding you, it's infectious. Um, and there was some great marketing to kind of like bring that to life, um, I think, for the industry. Um, um, and, and ultimately, listen, the solutions like Appeal and, and others like we have at Verdon and, and other solution providers, I mean, there is great opportunity to both create like financial impact and, you know, um, whether you know whether it's financial you know kind of sustainability esg so i, I mean it, it definitely checks all those boxes as well but 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 anyways those are a couple things that um that come to mind don't get me wrong there's plenty of twists and turns and it was constantly problem solving um but i think any organization that has that kind of you know in its core dna just um that kind of strong culture and that like problem solving you know i think yeah. You know, there's always a little bit of like right timing and good fortune and and, and those sorts of things. But um, I think some of those things are really foundational. Yeah, I really like what you said about culture. And I think good people make the place. I mean, I always say location, you know, even when I think about where I want to live, right? Sure. Location is secondary almost to the people in that location, right? You want to be around people. My my aunt says, you know, find your, find your tribe, you know, build your high vibe tribe, that kind of thing. And I think that stands true for company culture as well. Um, and you, yeah, yeah, you really touched on a good point there. I think also with appeal, and you also mentioned this marketing element, you know, one thing that fascinates me about appeal in Europe is that it's actually a consumer recognized brand now. Mm. Um, I mean, they have a sticker <laughs> that people recognize. Um, you know, not a lot of people kind of can hit B to B and B to C. So uh, maybe that was also a part of their um, success is that they kind of, at least in Europe, I know in the US, I don't think yeah. that there's as many of that much of that but here you know you go to Adica, which is a local grocery store in germany and they'll have like the appeal avocado right crazy yeah yeah i mean it, it, it's uh it, I, i've seen it in store and, and honestly i'll say that that was um one of my proudest moments i look back on i i you know have the picture saved in my favorites where um i mean this is like fast forward years and years from when i first joined you know my role transitioned a lot from the engineering in the lab to commercial Right. Um, and a really proud moment for me was, you know, my parents, they, they shop at their local Kroger store, um, and getting to see, you know, a display in store with, you know, the avocados with a sticker and take a picture with my mom was like, just the most wonderful moment. I, I don't know, maybe more for me than her. I don't know. Um, but it was, it was just really amazing to see, you know, you know, my parents so supportive through through that journey, um, you know, dropping out of school and like startup, like what is this? But like 
never once missed a beat just to support me and then to like fast forward to get to like show them hey this is what i've been like working on and it's and it's in your local grocery store such a proud moment um i mean i i, I feel like it's maybe worth sharing um you know for those that are maybe you know a lot of I, I think a lot of what we talked about today Alicia. you know like if you're in this sort of role some advice or if you're in this space but there may be people that are you know contemplating you know joining on with a team or, or this whole startup space there's so much risk you know how can i even Finding find myself to make that leap, I, you know, on a, on a really personal level, I'll never forget. Um, you know, I was still in grad school, um, you know, very kind of happily, um, and uh, it, it was a, it was a Friday night, and I got a text from kind of the, James, the founder of Peel, and he was like, "Hey, you free for breakfast tomorrow morning?" And I was out celebrating as fate would have it. Like one of my <laughs> colleagues, you know, lab mates uh, or, or grad school mates, was like just finished their PhD, so we were like celebrating. It was just you know, a great, great day, a great evening. Um, and I texted James, yeah, sure, I'll meet for breakfast. And anyways, that's where he kind of laid out, hey, we're starting to scale the business, you're an engineer, right? Like, you know, it'd be great to have you join and we could use some of your skill sets. And it was like this, I was like, it all sounds great, this one small thing, I'm not quite done with school. And, you know, so, you know, there I was then like having, you know, starting to then contemplate this decision. Do I stay and finish the PhD or do I kind of like, jump ship is kind of what it felt like and and join the startup thing and i'll never forget you know serendipitously like the next week or weekend my parents were coming to visit santa barbara um and i'll never forget the you know ended up uh, meeting up with james and doing a tour of the appeal office at that time and um so my my, my dad him, himself is a is his phd you know really really brilliant guy um and has kind of worked in you know large corporations um, so here we are, you can picture us like touring what was kind of the shell of an office. There's like a lab, but also like a ping pong table and beanbag chair and like a, probably like a keg or two, you know, so it's like, there, there's a lot of vision, uh, you know, but like it, we're, it's, it's very early stage and, you know, you can just picture, I'm like walking behind and like watching this tour happen. I'm like, oh my God, like, what is, what is my dad thinking? You know, uh, fast forward to like dinner that night. I'll never forget. I asked my dad, I was like, so what'd you think? And I'm like, I, I, I know what he's going to say. Uh, and I'll never forget, he said, and I, I, you know, before I share what he said, I think it's just important that, you know, for those that out there, you know, whenever you're at that fork and they're trying to make that decision, like finding those people that you really care about, you know, you know, and helping you overcome like fear or uncertainty. And so it was asked my dad, and I said, you know, what do you think? Um, and he said, you know, Matthew, I think if you don't pursue this opportunity, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. Wow. And I was like, well, <laughs> um, how, how can I, you know, not now I take that leap? And so um, I even get like emotional even thinking about it. It was like, <clears throat> just just like, a, it was like the most amazing gift, you know? Um, and I think, you know, so you, 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 I think about that and you like try to find opportunities to like pay that forward, whether it's like, you know, your friends, your own kids. Um, and so anyways, I think back to that moment, which like, really gave me the courage to to make that leap and and just not look back so i yeah thank you for sharing that and and on this kind of personal note i think everyone's probably well your dog left but i was gonna say oh, everyone's yeah. probably pretty curious about the farm the dog i mean yeah if you'd like to share a bit about what your family's doing i know you have a small family business yes um and there i i think somewhere out on the farm right now as we speak so um, I, I, um, I do live on a farm, a, um, small farm out in North Carolina. So on the East coast, 
of the U.S. Um, and and I, I I think it's important that I start by saying um, my my wife is very much like the brains and the muscle behind the operation. Um, it's a beautiful vegetable farm, primarily vegetables. There are some other things growing as well, but we've got a, a weekly CSA program. And for those who aren't familiar, you know, veggies in a box. People come once a week and pick them up. Um, and so I, I, again, she is very much the brains and muscle behind the operation. I am uh, just the occasional farmhand, uh, which is amazing uh, to be able to get out from behind the computer screen and get some dirt under the fingernails. And, 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 and so, you know, I'm surrounded by vegetables, you know, uh, all day, every day, whether, you know, at work with Verdon or, or here at home, but it's my wife. We've got a, a son who's about to turn two uh, and actually our second one on the way um, here in just about right. a month or so. Um, so some more little farm hands, uh, for, for, uh, for the future and a dog that, as you said, Alicia is, is, uh, his name is Arlo and he's often sitting right here by, beside me. He's my co or behind me as my, uh, my trusty co-pilot. So, um, anyways, that, that's our small family unit, but man, just being, you know, we've, we've been on this property for like the last, I guess almost or over four years. And, you know, it's just to be like a steward of this land, uh, for kind of this brief moment in time. Uh, has just been really amazing. Um, just to be, uh, not just because it's like just amazing vegetables, you know, in the backyard to to enjoy, but to like serve the community in this way, um, to have people come and and provide that kind of nourishment to them, um, and and just for my wife, like it was always a big dream of hers. Her passion is really around education, and so really getting to see that come to life as part of her business um, has just been really amazing so yeah woo, go women in agriculture right like awesome good for her yeah. Yeah. <laughs> i've actually had an incredible amount of female leaders in agriculture on this podcast so stay yeah. tuned you're gonna have yeah yeah there's gonna be quite a few more women um coming live all right so wrapping up are there any final words you'd like to share with the audience before we conclude gosh um this has been great i, I really appreciate Alicia, the, the conversation um you know, um, I, I, well, I guess first I would say, you know, thank you to you and um, Tridge, you know, Agri Insider for this opportunity. I mean, I, I, for all the listeners, like truly welcome the opportunity to, you know, connect. Um, you know, people can find me on LinkedIn, but, you know, I haven't, I'll admit, historically done a great job of putting myself out there in this way. So thank you for challenging me. Um, and, and for those who might be out there saying, oh, I don't know, I don't know how I feel about this whole podcast or, you know, speaking or what have you it's um um you know again just thank you for the opportunity but also challenging me in this way um you know maybe the last thing i'd share i don't know if it's quite words of wisdom but just um a couple things that come to mind just like as we're kind of talking about this you know we're talking about startups we're talking about challenges and risk you know um a saying that i've i guess heard and, and now really maybe taken to heart from kind of the leadership of you know, now Vernon and kind of our parent company, Gulf Tech is one of the risk of success is failure. Um, like if, if you think about that, um, no matter what your role is or title is, I mean, especially in sort of a startup, you know, entrepreneurial type environment where there's a lot of, uh, you know, upside and potential, but also like risk and uncertainty and ambiguity, I, I find a lot of empowerment in that, you know, the risk of success is failure. Um, so, so that comes to mind, just wanting to share again, I just, as we're all out there kind of, you know, working to solve these problems, beating our heads against a wall can feel like it sometimes like that, that that's really powerful, especially coming from leadership to kind of create that, you know, air cover and, and empower the team in that way. 
Um, and the last thing I'd say too, this is going back to maybe your early, your, your first question there, Alicia, how I kind of got into this whole thing. I, I think encouraging folks to, you know, really find inspiration uh, at the edges. Um, that's what, you know, led me to choose the grad school I did, just loving the research that happened very interdisciplinary at the edges. Um, and even kind of jumping into the, you know, the first startup with people like applying, you know, polymer physics to produce, like seemingly tangential. And, and a lot of what we're doing at Burden is like material science and produce and flowers. I mean, you know, it's really, um, so it, and it's not just disciplines, you know, different disciplines or industries. I think the edge can also be, um, you know, teams, you know, the kind of cross-functional nature. So really finding inspiration um, at the edges. And I think that's like a, 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 where, you know, innovation can really, can really be, really be a spark for innovation. So just a couple of things I'd share just in reflecting on what's been, at least from my perspective, a really great conversation today. So thank you. Thank you, Matthew. You've given us a lot of words of wisdom. I think I've written down at least like five really critical things that I'm going to, you know, put on my wall here after the call. <laughs> it's really, really, really been great to talk to you today. And I'm looking forward to seeing a picture that your mom's going to take at the grocery store of this new tomato variety that yeah. she hasn't had in the past, right? You're going to have that moment again soon where she's in the store and she's like, hey, Matthew, isn't this the... Isn't right. this the tomato variety you made possible to be on the shelf? Um, so yeah, I will, I will send that to you. I will send that picture Thank to you. you. I I really appreciate it. Thank you again, Matthew. It's been great speaking. Hey, thank you so much. This podcast has been brought to you by Tridge, the leading global intelligence and networking platform for agriculture. Visit us at www.tridge.com to find out more.